Welcome to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw, where we dive into life lessons from entrepreneurs, experts, leaders, writers, and difference makers. They all have three things in common. None are perfect, all are humble, and they've learned a few things along the way. And What I Wish I Knew, they share those lessons with you. If there's one thing we've learned from the guests on What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw, it's this. No matter the obstacles, these people always find a way. Please subscribe, follow, and rate us on your favorite podcast platform and join our email list at whatiwishinewshow.com. David Taylor has been named one of the world's 50 leading marketing thinkers by the Chartered Institute of Marketing. His specialty, however, is in real-world applied marketing, the sort that delivers growth in revenue and in regard. And whether the brand is a product or the proverbial brand you, Taylor has pragmatic advice shaped by 28 years experience leading brand growth projects for some of the world's biggest global brands. In this episode of What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw, David talks about his transition from engineer to marketer, crucible moments in life, the four classic marketing mistakes to avoid, and the rise of insurgent brands. Taylor is also author of eight acclaimed branding books, writes one of the world's top branding blogs, and is a highly rated teacher at the London Business School. He's designed and delivered training programs for leading companies, including AB InBev, Mars, Mondelay, Old Mutual, Platus, and WD40. Prior to founding the Brand Gym in 2002, David worked with P&G before doing an MBA at Inseid and running the Paris office of Kantar Added Value. Taylor also delivers brand training available to all called Mastering Brand Growth, which we'll um, link in our website. David Taylor, welcome to What I Wish I Knew. And let's start with how you got here. Okay, well, I uh, grew up, spent my teenage years um, in the north of England. Um, and that's, I think it's quite important because I still now talk about having the spirit of a northern marketing, di- marketing director. So for non-UK uh, folk, the north of England is, is actually probably more pragmatic, more down to earth, a bit less intellectual, anti-snobbery. So that was, that was pretty Im- Im- important. Um, I went to, I studied uh, mechanical engineering at uh, university. It seemed a good idea at the time because I was good at maths and science. It seemed quite logical. Uh, I actually got a company to sponsor me through university, an engineering company, got an engineering scholarship from the, from the government. So it, it was all real plain sailing until I actually started my course. And rather than starting at university, I was put onto the shop floor uh, in, a, <laughs> in a factory in Cheltenham, getting up at 6.30 a.m. and going onto the shop floor to learn about being a craft apprentice. Um, although my dad is probably the most practical person I know in terms of doing things with his hands, uh, he, as he said, I think something got missed when I was born because that whole gene seemed to be completely <laughs> missing. And, uh, having been, you know, pretty good at school, it was, it was, a, it was a truly horrible experience being absolutely rubbish and poor and bad at that whole aspects of being a craft apprentice, you know, using tools, working metal. It, it was really, um, you know, really, uh, really not, not great at all. And I just thought, my God, I've just made the worst possible mistake. You know, what the hell am I doing? And I then arrived at university, you know, at college, university and just, oh God, I just, just terrible. So for me personally, just, I mean, I say to my daughters who are now at university, you know, if I actually used an algorithm and used AI to pick the worst possible course, um, that would have been the one that it would have thrown out. I mean, literally almost anything would have been better. So it was pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty dark, dark days really. And um, the one glimmer of light in my first period in industry was at the end of that process, you had to create a project team and do a presentation and you had to sort of present your the thing that you would built so i said to the guys well you you build this thing because i'm absolutely <laughs> i've got no interest or aptitude i'll do the presentation so that was the first time really i'd ever presented to a group of senior people and it was a group of senior directors um and that actually i thought well, this is this is actually good i actually 
I created a sort of character. I did a sort of cartoon drawing. I did a, I did the the sales pitch, um, and uh, and that seemed to go down well. And I thought, actually, look, this seems good. What's this? And that's when I started to get an inkling about sort of sales. Maybe there's a thing called marketing, um, and that was a sort of glimmer of hope. And so I then was on a mission to escape engineering and get into the world of this thing called marketing that I discovered. So I subscribed to um, a magazine called Campaign, which is an advertising magazine. Uh, so I was studying engineering in the daytime, but then at night, you know, reading about advertising <laughs> and brands and thought this is really cool. I went on a couple of marketing vacation courses with ICI and Unilever, you know, and thought, uh, and basically was on this mission to, you know, escape the world of engineering and, but stuck out this four year course which is, uh, you know, that's, that's a sort of, I guess the, the idea, I, I, I think a quality that's really key in business and life is, is stamina, you know, so, and that's certainly part of my, I think, my DNA, you know, so I stuck out four years of hell doing engineering. I mean, maybe in retrospect, it would have been a good idea to maybe change course, but I, I decided to stick it out. Um, but by the time I left, I had the chance to go and, um, to go and work for uh, Procter and Gamble, uh, right? In yeah. Uh, and that's how but I got Jay into marketing. That's how I got into marketing. Got into marketing and did uh, did uh, did marketing at Procter and Gamble, which you can probably talk about because that was just absolutely epic and awesome, and uh, you know has stayed with me ever 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 since. Um, um, and and then did that. I did did an M actually left to do an MBA. Uh, and ended up in consulting for a for a for a company in the UK, um, starting their office in France. Um, and then the other big shift then was after doing that for ten years, I left to start the brand gym, uh, which was twenty years ago in December this year. So, wow! Uh, wow, that's incredible, David. Just just a question, and we won't uh, dwell on it because it sounds like it it was a painful experience. But the <laughs> the mechanical engineering bit was there anything that you took that has helped you? in the future part of your life or, or so I career? Think the, 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 the good bit of it is, I get, is the approach to sort of structure and analysis and build, building, building, you know, so yeah, I actually talk about brand building and um, constructing. And so I think the, uh, certainly the, uh, there is a sort of, you know, a silver lining to most clouds, isn't there? You know, I mean, even bad experiences, <laughs> Uh, can be beneficial and certainly the approach to analysis and being thorough and being structured being process driven though those those elements of it have certainly stayed with me and then the other big benefit which I think helped me which you know helped me get my job at Procter and Gamble was that it with it being what's called a sandwich course where you you alternate studying and working yeah by the time I graduated I did have like 18 18 months almost two years experience in industry you know, and actually working in a business, working with people, learning to influence people, working with people from different levels, you know, so working, you know, being on a shop floor, presenting to a board, you know, working with uh, directors of a business, so that, that all that aspect of actually working, you know, in the real world. Um, yeah. At the sharp end, you know, because yeah. working in factories, yeah. you, know, you, you get a very different view of the world from working, you know, studying in the classroom. So that's... And the reason I asked that... Um, uh, David, the uh, reason I ask that is a lot of listeners and a lot of people that have been successful don't necessarily stay where they started. And for me, those listeners, you know, if you do mechanical engineering, if you do whatever you do, you know, you're the perfect um, uh, sponsor, if you like, of this to say it doesn't matter. You know, you you can do what you want to do. Yeah, you can escape. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the funny thing is that my business partner is called David Nichols, he's, he's a brilliant guy, and the most creative marketeer I know, he did aeronautical engineering at university. So it, wow. it, shows, that, uh, it shows that exactly, you know, where you start is not where you have to finish, provided that you've got a clear idea of what you want, a clear vision of what you want to do, and then you work very hard at it, because obviously people will try and put you in a, in a box. So to break out of that box, it does require it doesn't happen by accident. It requires a very clear vision of where you want to get to, and then a yeah. very determined, you know, approach to to create your your plan. But it's uh, absolutely feasible. 
You know, on, on that note, though, David, you know, a couple of things that come away from your kind of your early days of your career really is you had this humbling experience. And in some ways, I kind of feel like that's sort of a gift for young people that, you know, yeah. people will sometimes come out of university, they don't have work experience, but they think they know so much. And, you know, then they grind to this halt and they realize, oh, wait a minute, the real world isn't quite the way that, you know, that I thought it was. So in in some ways, I mean, you, you take with it that engineering experience, but also sort of that, you know, a, a, a bit of humbling. And, and what I just wanted you to reflect on for a moment is that, um, I guess it's my belief that the world can be divided largely into two groups of people, some that figure things out and some that don't. And some the, the ones that don't tend to stay in there you know, stuck, they don't escape, as you mentioned, you know, with engineering, the, the ones that figure things out may not exactly yet quite have a clear picture of where they want to go, but they're, they're trialing things along the way. Right. And that helps them kind of narrow things down. So in that sense, did you have that, that uh, mindset of experimentation or always, or is that something that you came about through frustration? I think in my case, probably I, 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 I expect to be on a linear direct, you know, linear course. I mean, you know, having done maths and science, then I'll go and do engineering, then I'll get a job in engineering and, you know, and then off I'll, off I'll go. So, you know, in my case, it, I guess I, I, I sort of crashed, I suppose. <laughs> that's what, that's what prompted the, the change. I, um, I think now with the benefit looking back of experience, you know, what I, what I wish I knew is if someone had said to me life, both professionally and personally is going to be um, a zigzag, you know, not a straight line. So just because you're doing engineering now doesn't mean you do it for the end of the rest of your life. I started at P&G and to be honest, I thought I would end up being a general manager. Well, my ambition would have been to stay and be a general manager and work my way up the ranks of Proctor because I just loved it. And I thought it was a brilliant organization as it was. I ended up leaving to do an MBA and then went back into marketing, but that job was, you know, maybe come on to was, was a bit of a nightmare. It didn't work out at all as expected. Then I went and, you know, started a business for a, a consultancy. So I think that's the life. And I think today more, even more than when we started careers, you know, and I mean, for the young people starting today, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely life is a, life is a, is a, is a zigzag, not a straight line. Um, so be, be, you know, embrace that, be ready for that, you know, focus on what you're doing at the current time, but be open, I guess, be open to inspiration, open to, open to new opportunities. Mm -hmm. And also the thing that we'll maybe talk about, I was reflecting on as, as I prepared for this session is that, you know, um, the, the work that we did as a as a as a brand gym uh, group, seen uh, as our group of partners on 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 our personal purpose, but we did that exercise a couple of years ago. Was it was about what are called crucible moments? So you know, the, the the crucible moments are the moments where your your very being and your very purpose is forged. You know, it requires heat and alchemy and pressure and challenge and difficult. And it's those. That's the other message I've tried to sort of give to my own kids is that the very moment when you're at your most down, you know, the hardest moment, the darkest day, you know, those, those are actually the crucible moments where your, you know, your, 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 your purpose and your, your role in life is actually forged. It's not actually during the good times because the good times are great. You know, when everything's going fantastic, you're on a roll. You're not necessarily learning, you're, you're performing, aren't you? Yeah, it's actually, when you hit when you hit a roadblock, when you crash yeah. or when things go wrong, that's when you think, oh, it, it's those oh shit moments, you know, that you think, oh, wow, this is not working. Why? And, and that's when you actually grow. Um, so I think those are the if I'd if I'd had those would have been great things to know at the time. You know, one is life is a zigzag, both professionally, personally. And the second is the points at where you're, you're you, you know, when you're down and when you've maybe failed and when things are going bad are the very yeah. moments that are going to actually forge you into the person that you're a bit and how you respond, of course, is the, is the key. You know, and it's not the fact you've, you know, you've hit a roadblock or you've, or you've crashed. It's how are you going to pick yourself up, you know, get back in the game and learn from what's happened to then move forward in a better, in a better way. I just want to reflect on that, David, because it, it, absolutely on on the money and and your experience and interface. So, from first of all, working in a marketing team and and how that teams evolve right now. What what's your reflection of those kind of 
aha moments that you could share with us now and and and, and more purposefully for those listening the kind of learning so you've 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 worked with you know uh, a shopper marketers uh, uh product marketers and all the rest of it what what are you seeing out there in the world of 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 those um you call them a uh, crucible moments those moments where they're like oh my god you know i've got to get through this what what sort of things are you seeing out there seeing out there with with the teams in terms of their managing brands in terms of their their working environment what what's different um you mean in terms of the clients i'm working with yeah yeah um i mean i, I guess that the, the The biggest, I mean, the challenges that people are facing, I guess, is you know, the world is, uh, you know, moves very quickly. And so trying to have the right balance between long term strategy and in my case, brand strategy, but then being responsive enough to respond to change. And what we often see and what the, the program I now do, the brand growth program, the, some of the questions that often come back from people who are participating is you talk about long term strategy and needing to to have that to build memory structures, we call it, you know, to build brand equity. And yet we're constantly chopping and changing in order to respond to the market changes. And I think that's the, 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 with that rapidly changing marketplace, the risk is that people just chop and change their, their brand strategy, you know, every six months. Whereas what we need, what they need is ideally is a long-term brand strategy and brand positioning. That's going to, you know, going to keep you going over time and then being responsive in terms of the, the tactics. So that's uh, that's probably the the biggest single thing um, I, I see people grappling with, and then the other bit linked to that is is obviously the the, the rapid acceleration and multiplication of channels, you know, media right. channels, and yeah. being focused on you know growing the business and following the money, and not not becoming too obsessed with experimenting with the latest you know, exciting new channel that may actually only have very limited reach, but it seems to be very cool and trendy. That's the other thing I've seen people grappling with over the last six to seven years, you know, is, is you can become, they can become almost obsessed with the new channels and experimenting with those. And when you actually talk about well, what's the reach is what you wish is what you need to grow a brand, you know, it's actually very small. So again, it's, it's, it's not being seduced by the, 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 the seduction of the new, you know, is a, is a, is a recurring theme. <laughs> in all the right. projects that we do. The marketeers love, whether it be new products, new media channels, you know, new trends. The, the, the temptation is often to to follow the new rather than finding that balance between consistency and, and, and freshness. I think that would be, a, that's a key, you know, key challenge I see people facing today. Yeah. Now, that's such an important point, David, when you talked about that balance between consistency and freshness. I mean, you see that temptation all the time when, you know, people, you know, either go into new roles running brands or they bring in somebody new or, or, you know, think they need to hire a new agency or whatever. And it's almost as if prior decisions get thrown out the door without really re that regard for, yeah. you know, as you, you talked about building memory structures or even building on the memory structures that are there. Yeah. And there's this rush to, to do something new. So as you think about that, how, how would someone know, you know, at the brand gym, you do a lot of work with clients in that way, but how do people know that they're on the right track with their brand in that regard? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one thing that we, that I always recommend people to do is to, uh, is to, is to treasure and measure your brand assets. So, you know, the example I use is if you, if you think about someone working in manufacturing, if they, if they had, if the, if the company had a $10 million you know, manufacturing facility and the production director said, we're going to just destroy it because I don't like it anymore. And then why, why, what, on what, but well, I just think we need to change, you know, because the, everyone else is changing. So we're going to change, we're going to destroy it and we're going to build a new factory. And then they, you know, people would think that that person was completely nuts. Whereas if a marketing, new marketing director says, I don't like this slogan or this design or this campaign, I'm going to change it. People say, oh, okay, right. Well, that's probably, you know, maybe you, you're the expert. So that's, that's, that's sort of destroying <laughs> brand assets. And I, and I say, you should really be treating brand assets and buy a brand assets. That could be a campaign. It could be a slogan, a color, a logo, a device. Th those are assets that are all va as valuable, if not more valuable than, um, than, a, than a manufacturing factory or facility. So you should be treasuring and measuring your assets. 
and there are you know methodologies to do that i mean we we have one called icat iconic asset tracking that we would use so what we would try and get people to do before they start to shift and change is to actually measure um measure those assets quantitatively and in fact your old company you know that i still work wd40 when they were changing a big they did a big design change uh on on their specialist range of products before that change was made, they actually assessed quantitatively the, uh, the assets of the WD40 brand um, and actually found out, for example, that the, the, blue and, uh, yellow, the blue and yellow can with the red top, without any branding, just that that, that asset was more iconic and recognisable than the Coca-Cola contour bottle. Wow. So therefore, protecting that and leveraging it you know, was was really was really important um, on the specialist range, um, and that then was driven through and actually ended up creating really effective packaging. So, to your point, I think trying to evaluate what you've got and understanding it and treasuring it before you start to make any changes is really the key thing that we would recommend that people yeah. do and have that uh, have that yeah quantitative approach rather than like you mentioned, a new marketing director comes in as the new broom and he or she decides, well, let's change the agency, let's change the campaign and, and you're zigging and zagging and you're not creating any long-term memory structure. Got it. And, and David, I mean, a lot of this has come from, from valuable experience, knowledge and results. Um, I just want to zigzag back and I know I, I pushed you into this, you know, how, how marketers work and tick. But I'm really interested in, in as well, your story of how you moved from the brands with the MBA. You did a little bit of, uh, I think you talked about the uh, company, the value added. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I was intrigued on your, mm. on your drive. And again, just the, the listeners on the show, on the aspects and characteristics that, that people should be thinking about themselves, right. yeah, about how you chose that, et cetera. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think the, 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 the first thing, I would say is, you know, invest in brand you. So, you know, invest in yourself, think about yourselves, you know, as almost you can think about yourself almost as a, as a brand, you know, and great brands invest right in their in their equity. So I took the call after five brilliant years at, at P&G, you know, I, I, I felt I wanted a sort of broader business education, you know, I wanted to, to do that. Um, and though P&G hired MBAs, they wouldn't send me on an MBA. So they said, you've got to resign. Um, and that then meant I had to self-fund that, that program, which at the time was 25,000 pounds. That was 30 years ago. So that's maybe, you know, maybe double that. So I had to take out a loan, uh, which is quite a big thing to do when you're 27 years old or something. But I sort of took that plunge to invest in, you know, my, you know, development. Um, came out of that program and ended up, like you said, back in marketing, in fact, for, a, for another company called Sarah Lee. Um, and working on uh, male underwear. Whereas <laughs> before I was in shampoo, I was now working on male underwear, which is which was an interesting uh, experience. But that, again, you know, it seemed great. It, it turned out to be a bit of a, a, a road crash. My boss who hired me was fired. The guy working for him was fired. I wanted to work in Paris because I was there with my, at the time, girlfriend, now my wife, who I'd met at Proctor. Uh, she's from Paris. She'd moved back with me to Paris while I was at INSEAD doing my MBA. Uh, I was moved to Belgium. So again, you know, wrong company, wrong job, wrong city. <laughs> um, but then, you know, serendipity came into play. And uh, I had a, f a, a friend who was working for Unilever who said, I've heard of this company called Added Value who want to start an office in Paris. So I guess that's the other thing you know, is just you have to accept that life is not a straight line. It's a zigzag. And also the other thing is, you know, you, you sometimes just need a bit of luck you know you need to be in the right place at the right time but then grab the opportunity when it comes i think that's the other thing you know is is grab the opportunity because she said look they, they, they want to start an office in paris give them a call i got in touch i ended up meeting the founder of the business in uh, in putney southwest london where i now live uh, by coincidence you know and and that was the opportunity to, to take a leap out of the corporate world and to uh, start work for a smaller business at the time it was only a 35 person company you know, and start this office in Paris uh, in, in consultancy. Um, 
having never worked in consultancy and never worked in Paris. And yet, you know, you, the bravado of youth, you know, when at 29, you think, well, I, I, uh, I can, I'll have a go, I'll have a go, I'll, I'll have a go at doing that. Um, and uh, ended up uh, being given the job with, a, with a, a, um, a, a colleague who worked for Added Value before to start this office in Paris. Um, and the founders, uh, Mark and Mark Sherrington and Peter Dart, were absolutely amazing in the sense that they just said, we're, we're going to go big. So they basically rented an office on the, off the Champs-Élysées that was big enough for 20 people, even though there was only two of us at the time. Because uh, they said, we want a nice office in the right part of Paris. We're going to go big. We're ambitious. So 20, 20 person office with two of us, you know, sort of rocking around inside it. Um, and they, and they, you know, they gave us a photocopied document with the creds, the credentials from the UK. <laughs> One little bit of work to keep us going and said, you know, off you, off you go, you know, go and go and build a business. Um, and, uh, that, you know, I just eternally grateful for them to them for backing us because that was, you know, P&G was brilliant, but this, this, I mean, you know, learning about business and entrepreneurship and consulting, just phenomenal, uh, period and, you know, ex experience to have the chance to do that and learn so much. And really, you know, I think Mike was talking before about, you know, the, the experiences where you really just get stuck in, you know, and get your hands dirty and learn. I mean, it was, you know, the first thing we had to do was to drive to Ikea to buy the furniture, you know, to actually build the desks and build a cupboard. And then we had to find a photocopier and then you had to find a, a PA to work with us. And then you had to go and find some clients, you know, in the days when there were no mobile phones or emails. So it was a question of, you know, writing letters, you know, and posting them and then trying to call the switchboard to get through to yeah. you know, the, mar the marketing, the marketing directors. Um, yeah. So, you know, fantastic experience about getting stuff done and then the other big thing i think uh, i was reflecting on prior to this uh, session was um selling you know and that's the thing that i say to my kids and everyone i meet who's young in a in a in a world of ai you know the things that won't won't go away is the need to be able to pitch and to sell whatever function you're in whether you're in hr or manufacturing or marketing you know the ability to sort of pitch and sell is going to remain because the AI systems that are going to replace whatever function it is, someone's got to go and sell them. They can't sell themselves, at least not yet. So certainly that idea of pitching, you know, selling, hustling, you know, the hustle. I think that's what that's one of the key things that we learned during that 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 time working, setting up the French office of uh, of that business. So thinking about that, then, um, David, you know, if if someone were starting out today. Um, either as a young marketer or as, you know, someone I'm sure you, you talked about that, you know, one of those lasting skills that you see going forward is, you know, the ability to sell things won't happen unless yeah. an idea is sold, a product is yeah. sold, something, yeah. a service is sold. Right. Yeah. Are there, if you had to kind of point out the three or four things that you wish, you know, younger people had in their toolkits, what would they be, you know, alongside that ability to sell? Mm -hmm. I think, um, Uh, learning, learning about learning to be uh, stamina. So, you know, learn, you know, that I think that in, a, in, in an age of instant gratification and instant results, you know, uh, instant delivery, you know, of stuff, I think, you know, stamina is really important sticking at, you know, stick, sticking at something, you know, uh, and staying in the game and staying in the race, you know, uh, whether it be on a project or trying to win a client. I mean, I think that's something that uh, is is really good um, to learn. Uh, the the thing that I w I think is really useful to learn is is just what still staggers me today is actually delivering your promises and delivering on time is still a source of competitive advantage. Um, you know, I'm going to deliver it on Monday, and then I deliver it on Friday night, and I've delivered what I said I would. You know, in just in terms of everyday interaction with businesses, suppliers, I'm always astounded by how poor, you know, how people fail to deliver. So then that that would be the second thing. You know, is, is just learn the power of actually, you know, uh, delivering, you know, and delivering consistently, and ideally over delivering. You know, you'll have it by Friday. You know, deliver it on Thursday. That would be a, a, a second thing yeah. um, that would be, um, and then I think being, 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 being curious, 
you know, looking looking beyond the brief, you know, going beyond the brief, you know, you're you're given the job to, you know, eat, send an email to these ten clients, but then you've then found another five clients beyond the, the those, um, you know. I, I saw an example on LinkedIn from a CEO. He he runs a very successful social media agency, and apparently, this guy had, he was a you know he gets hundreds of candidates a week trying to email him, but you know this 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 particular guy had created a Wikipedia page because he didn't have one, so he'd gone and created a Wikipedia page for this guy and sent it to him, and then he got hired. <laughs> so that's that's you know go beyond the brief, you know go beyond the brief, be curious and and over deliver. You know, and, and do that proactively, because I think the world today, particularly for young people starting out, is so hyper competitive that, yeah. you know, that just just doing the standard, you know, send in my CV, do a cover letter, you know, apply for it. It's just it's just it's just you need to be building your portfolio. You know, I mean, that's often something used for people in a creative profession, like if you're, a, you know, an architect or a designer or, you know, a photographer, but almost whatever job you want to be in I think starting young and building your portfolio you know if you're into marketing then look at brands look at advertising you know create some social media posts you know find a little business that's or create a little business you know create a little side side business and start doing what it is you want to do as a career now don't don't just wait until you know the job application time comes around because there's hundreds if not thousands of people who are going to be going to be doing the same thing Again, going back to the idea of, you know, your personal brand, you've got to create distinctiveness, you know, in order to stand out, uh, particularly in a world where you are going to be zigging and zagging. You know, people are not going to join jobs and stay there for 40 years anymore. They're going to move and be portable and move around. Therefore, you've got to be thinking about your own personal, your own personal brand, I think. You yeah. know, what's my positioning? What's my purpose? What makes me distinctive? And then constantly revite. That's what I say to clients on, on, on branding projects. And we teach on the brand growth program you know is the is the principle of brand revitalization you have to revitalize yourself you've got to invest in you you need to be training yourself you need to be improving yourself you need to stay curious you need to be building your portfolio you know so that's that that's that's the other piece that i would i would recommend no that's fascinating and 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 some of those things you've you've highlighted about yourself yeah in terms of your career and 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 and, and staging I want to ask you as well then, because you we talk about being distinct and and and, and different um, and something you uh, promote. You move then into the into your own uh, business effectively. Just tell us a bit about that, because I was I was I was reflecting on that earlier and how you talked about you you were the I guess you were the first a uh, remote business in the world perhaps um, you know and and how you did things differently and. And unique, and then a little bit about what value you brought to uh, your businesses. Yeah, so I mean, I uh, so having you know had a just absolutely fantastic uh, time building the French business of um, added value, which is now part of the Cantar Group. Um, so we we grew. There were two of us, and we actually grew the business to fifty to fifty people. So we were over a sort of nine year period, we grew it to fifty people. Uh, we moved to bigger offices uh, in Paris, uh, but I'd, I'd had always had this sort of inkling, this idea about having my own, creating something, you know, having creating my own business. So we'd built the Paris office of an existing company, which was, uh, you know, a fantastic uh, experience. It was a bit like being an, an entrepreneur inside a company, but it was still, you know, you were, you were, we were company employee, employees. So I had that inkling about wanting to do my own 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 thing, and so uh, it was um, after about nine years of doing that uh, job that I I took the leap, the big leap, you know, another big leap to go uh, to go solo, so leaving the corporate world to become an entrepreneur and actually start uh, this business called the the brand gym, um, yeah. and the idea. I'd, I'd read a, a, a couple of books that were really influential and, and one of them was about starting a, a consultancy and it, it, it talked about um, you know absolutely cutting your cost base to the minimum so uh, you know that that that's really to be that's really what drove the decision to be a virtual business was don't get a swanky office in London don't hire loads of people you know really bootstrap it at the beginning um, so that's that's when I started a brand gym it was just me it was a one-man band. Uh, it was a home office. 
uh, it was a laptop, a mobile phone, and and that was pretty much pretty much it to get going, to sort of minimize your cost base and give yourself the maximum maximize your chances of success. Um, and it started off just me, and then it was a client, uh, Diego Kerner, who was a client of mine uh, at the time, working at Cadbury. You know, he said, "I'm going to go back to Argentina for family reasons, and I want to do what you do. I'm going to start my own business." Um, so again, you know, what we've talked about, you know, be, be open to opportunity, you know, and respond and, and, you know, be ready to zig and zag, you know. So I had no, in, no intention at all of actually having any people in the business because I loved the brand thinking. That's the thing that turns me on is brand thinking and strategy, not managing people. I'm rubbish, you know, uh, openly admit that I'm not, it's not my strength managing people. That's not, absolutely not my, my strength. My strength is more about the sort of the thinking and the strategy. Um, but we said, well, what about if you were, if you, if you effectively licensed the, the brand gym brand, so you build your own business, you know, you don't work for me, you build your own business and you, you, you can pay a licensing fee for being part of the, of the brand gym, uh, which by that point had already had one book. I started the blog, I think. So that's how we started out. And so we didn't have any offices. So he followed the same approach and he, he worked from home and we talked by phone and, you know, an email. And as we grew and added more people, we just followed that. So we, it was by it was really you know a, a happy accident in a way. It was it was actually driven by the desire to reduce to to reduce cost and be very agile and very um, low fixed cost. Yeah, so that's the way that we 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 built the business from 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 the from the beginning. And then as you know, the business has been going for twenty years. I guess probably six seven years ago we started experimenting with things like Zoom. Uh, particularly because a lot of our projects are international. So I'm based in London, but you know, a lot of work I've done has been in South Africa, I've worked in Peru, worked in China. So, you know, you're not going to go to those places to do planning meetings. So we had to do it by phone initially. And then after that, by, by zoom. So, uh, even though the workshops we did were physical, you know, on location, we'd actually started to build a lot of experience about how you work as a virtual, as a virtual, uh, as a virtual, uh, business. Um, through the work that we're doing on our on our projects, and then you know, given what's happened in the last eighteen twenty four months, you know, <laughs> having no, we our model at the brand gym is we have no, we only have the senior partners. So rather than a classic consultant, which is a pyramid, you know, we have a few partners, and you have you know directors, and you have junior people, and you have assistants, and you know everything else. We just have the top bit of that, so we only have senior partners. Uh, with 20 to 30 years experience, no junior people, no managers, no, no secretaries, no assistants, no, wow. we just strip all that out yeah. Yeah. and just have the people and the thinking. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's always been our, um, our approach to that. Um, given what's happened in the last, you know, last couple of years, you know, proved to be <laughs> highly effective uh, because uh, people who had fixed costs and offices and uh, that's been, that's been, that's been, uh, you know, a potential drag on their, on their, you know, growth. That's pretty much genius though, David. I mean, essentially you were 18 years ahead of your time. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's some of the things that we that we did have I've, some of the, so some of those ways of working have become more, more, uh, more common, I guess, yeah, more wide, widespread. Um, but, uh, no, fascinating. So I wanted to ask a little bit, I mean, you, you know, through the brand gym, you, you've built an impressive client roster, as you mentioned, around the world. And you've, you've probably seen, you know, a lot of great brands. You've probably seen some that maybe weren't particularly well known. I, I want to turn a little bit negative, but hopefully in a constructive way. And that is, if there were three or four things that you would kind of considered to be sort of the classic mistakes that, mm. you know, that marketers have in terms of the people that are running the brands and you walk in the door or walk in the virtual door, so to speak, and you're like, wow, what would those three or four things be if there are, you know, commonalities of, you know, classic yeah. mistakes? Yeah. So I think in terms of things that uh, we see, first one, the first one is a very common one is goes back to this idea of the lure of the new. So, uh, you know, brand, uh, brand has existing, you know, successful core business starts to experiment with innovation, which is a highly hot, you know, a very hot topic. You know, everyone's being you know, marketeers constantly being told, you've got to innovate, innovate, innovate. So they launch something new. Uh, it ends up being quite small, but it, it, it sucks 
effort and talent, very importantly, talent away from the core. So an example I use is, you know, Tesco in the UK back, you know, in the, in the, in the 2010s, very successful core business. They go off, they buy a coffee chain called Harrison Hall. Uh, they buy some, you know, incredibly premium bakery business. They buy a restaurant brand called Giraffe. Uh, they go into garden centers, you know, they, because they, 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 the idea was to create a lifestyle destination brand, you know, so you go and do your coffee in your restaurant and then you go to Tesco, which yeah. at the time when they were being attacked by discounters. So that, that, that's probably the first, probably the first and single biggest, you know, I think, um, strategic risk that people take because and I talk about, we talk about ROI, return on investment, but I also talk about return on talent. Where are your best, smartest, most able people working? And these new projects can often drag people away from those, from the core onto those new, smaller things. And the challenge with those small products uh, that get launched by people is, you know, is, is are, they a, are, they, are they a baby, you know, who's going to, grow into a giant or are they doomed to stay small? Um, so that's the first thing and, and, and getting that, it doesn't mean to say don't innovate, uh, but it does mean sometimes rebalancing the effort put on the new stuff versus the, the new products versus the core. So that would be the, that would be the first, I guess, strategic risk. The second one, which is, is directly linked to that is forgetting, forgetting what made you famous. So in the effort to renew, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's forgetting the things that made you famous, both in terms of brand positioning and also brand assets. So things like visual properties, slogans, colors, sort of throwing that away and then just trying to do something that's completely, uh, that's completely different. Uh, that doesn't build on what made you, what made you strong in the first place. Um, that would be the second. And so brands that lose their way, you know, so, uh, I worked on a beer brand in South Africa called Castle Light, for example, it, it was, it grew incredibly successfully by talking about being a very refreshing, extra cold refreshment brand with a lot of humor. And then in a response to the sort of trend towards having to become a, you know, a, a sort of a brand that's, you know, driving change in society, they had a period where they become suddenly became super serious, quite preachy, you know, and you just saw, whoa, what, what, where did that come from? You know, it's like a, it's like a complete shift. This doesn't build on where the brand came from. And so the people you're trying to attract probably don't like you. And the people that used to buy you look at you and say, well, where's my brand gone? So that would be the, that would be the second key thing is, uh, you know, is, is forgetting what made you famous. Whereas what we try to do is we always on brand and projects, try and encourage people to remember what remember and refresh. Yeah. Um, yeah. The counter argument, which would be probably the third thing, is is brands that haven't consistently revitalized. And the <laughs> challenge with that is that a gradual decline consistently over many years suddenly can become very problematic. So in other words, you know, you go down a couple of two, three percent a year, but you do that for, you know, do that for a few years and suddenly you've lost a third of your, you know, 25 percent of your business and you lose vitality, you lose sales, you lose momentum. And then it's a really difficult job to relaunch. I guess that would be the third, the third mm. thing that we see is brands that have been um, neglected. You know, they haven't had that. Often, sometimes going back to problem one, because we've been so busy going off doing new stuff, we haven't actually revitalized the core, and so it started to it started to de decline. So that that would be the, the the third thing. And then running through all of that, it the problems in my experience happen when when people don't follow the money in other words they follow the trends they follow what management wants to do they follow their pet projects they follow the politics you know <laughs> they're not following the money if you if you actually come back and actually follow the money and have this uh, you know this this desire and this ability to sniff out you know to sniff out where's that where's the money you know where's the growth what where's the where's the opportunity um that's the thing that flows through all of those, those, those points is it's when people don't do that, that they get into trouble. And, and just on that, David, um, and I think there's a quote or something you've written and, and it might refer to your first point about the, the innovation piece. You, I think you talk about smaller 
businesses can sometimes be more effective in in innovation than uh, large. Right. Yeah. And there's a list somewhere. Can you just describe and, and share with, I guess, A, why that is and B, what's the learning? You know, if you're a big company, I guess yeah. you can still do that. So that was so we did we did we did uh, quite quite a lot of research a couple of years ago about what we called insurgent brands. So these are smaller, smaller, nimble, new brands that move very quick and were starting to eat away at, at the big brands. And people were, were sort of saying, well, big brands, are, you know, are doomed, you know, they're, they're doomed to, to, to sort of decline. I mean, we, we felt that was fundamentally wrong and believe big brands could have a strong future, but they needed to revitalize. So it was big brands fight back was sort of the, the sort of the theme that we were doing research on. And I think learning, you know, learning from those smaller agile brands, uh, some of the things that big brands have now increasingly started to adopt, you know, is I think the first thing is, 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 is testing by doing. So what those smaller brands do, they don't spend years and years doing expensive, you know, multiple rounds of expensive research. What they would do is prototype. So that's something that we do on, we encourage people on branding projects to do, you know, is, is pro, don't get stuck in the theory and the, you know, conceptualize, you know, just hmm. create a prototype and you know, mock up the mock up what the pack would look like or mock up the social media page or, you know, make it real. And then the second thing is there's then learn by doing. So, uh, you know, get, get it into test in a small number of stores with a friendly retailer or, you know, create a mock-up website and see whether people click to buy the product. So these sort of ways of, ways of experimenting to accelerate the process of uh, innovation or renovation, you know, is, is probably the key thing that big companies um, are, are now increasingly have, have learned from those smaller brands. And then a step further than that, you know, clients that we were with, so been working this year with, with Kraft Heinz, they, um, for example, will have a special unit actually of people who are like, uh, so they're sometimes called the ventures group, you know, where they're, they're, and they work to different rules. So they're able to work with third party suppliers to actually be able to produce at um, less, at lower scale. You know, so they don't, they're not obliged to have to use the existing factory and work, you know, need massive, you know, production runs. They can actually be much more, create smaller volumes and then test by test and learn. So launch, launch things into the market at small scale in a limited number of retailers. And then if they're successful, they can then scale up and then they get handed back to the main business. So, you know, think less, do more, you know, is one of my favorite, you know, favorite phrases, you know, prototype test, learn, and learn in the marketplace rather than in, you know, in countless rounds of, you know, what is often super expensive quantitative and, research. Yeah. Hey, but on that note, what do you see, you know, you, you talked about think less, do more, you know, that maybe some of the, the agility that comes with an insurgent burnout or something that's smaller. Yeah. Um, do you see much in the way of, you know, brands that any commonality with brands that rise, that become insert, that start as insurgent brands or digitally native or whatever that, that succeed versus maybe some that don't, is there any mm. common threads with, or themes with those types of stories? Mm -hmm. So in the one that, uh, as, as an example of that, just to draw learning from that uh, recently I wrote about on the, uh, in the Brandium blog is, you know, you look at the Oatly uh, example, which is phenomenally, you know, successful. And some of the learning from that is, is I think first of all, is just is driving distinctiveness through the whole of that, the whole of that mix, you know, so having a distinctive proposition, highly distinctive visual, you know, visual identity, distinctive communication. So really, um, you know, standing out from that, uh, from that st standpoint and driving it through the whole, the whole of the, the whole, the whole of the marketing mix and that therefore enabling you to get more bang for your buck. So when you do start to put in any marketing support, that support is going to be a lot more you know, effective. Um, and then the second thing, which is often less written about because it's less cool is, uh, is, is how, how that smart they were with the distribution as a, you know, as a, as a, uh, as a builder. So starting off by distributing in coffee shops, um, they had a distinctive product. They had a thing called the barista product that they uh, designed to work really well with uh, coffee. 
uh, lattes and flat whites. So that was another source of distinctiveness was the product. And then the channel, starting off in that channel, actually creating learning, you know, creating a lot of noise, uh, creating a lot of recommendation. Uh, that was another key driver. So that the, the combination of distinctiveness and distribution, those two working together is really what sets apart, um, you know, the, the, the insurgent brands that, that grow and those that don't. And then the third thing, I think distinctiveness and distribution underpinned by re relevance because you can get an insurgent brand that is very highly differentiated but the the differentiation can actually be the enemy of relevance <laughs> interesting so if you're too you know if you push differentiation to its extreme you'll have a single consumer if you're super super differentiated whereas you know if you look at oatly compared to other dairy alternative brands I mean, they had obviously had a, a point of difference in the fact that, you know, it was oat rather than uh, oat milk, um, you know, rather than uh, soya milk. That's a, that's, that is a, that is a, a point of difference. But you know, beyond that, it didn't, did it taste radically different and completely different? You know, was it, was its packaging format radically different from other dairy? Oil? No, you know, uh, what it was was highly distinctive and it was uh, highly, um, it was highly uh, relevant. Um, and their, their smart thing, their shift they made was moving away from being a very niche brand focused on, on health benefits to actually targeting people who were interested in, in, you know, an alternative to dairy for both health reasons, but also for, uh, environmental reasons. So tapping into that whole, you know, sustainability, uh, side of, uh, dairy alternatives. So. That, that, that sort of combination. So finding what, you know, finding something that's relevant to a big group, to a potentially a very big group of people, you know, and not, and not becoming an insurgent brand that's super, super niched. That's the other thing that uh, I think is, 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 is key. No, it's fascinating. Uh, David, I, I had one final question and it, it rates to all the, all the superlatives you just talked about being distinct and different and unique and, and, and creative. I'd, I'd like you to share a bit more about the, well, uh, the brand gym academy first up, and and then what what's your future? What what do you see? What what's the vision of of a a, a brand gym? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the brand gym academy is. I mean, that that is something that. Uh, I mean, I, I I wrote a blog post that I sent to you guys called you know I think it was uh, you know screw it just screw it and do it. I think it might have used slightly more colorful language. <laughs> it did. It did. <laughs> gets the same point across. And I think, you know, I, I, I'd, having written, a, you know, a series of, of books, having written a blog post, having done teaching, I'd always had this thing in the back of my mind about creating some form of um, learning platform um, that would take all that knowledge and know-how and models and frameworks, but just never, I just kept making excuses about why, you know, it was too expensive or too hard, or there's too many competitors already out there doing it and never really getting around to do it. And the, one of the, you know, silver linings of this, you know, terrible, difficult time we've been through is that suddenly because of, you know, uh, lockdowns, companies couldn't actually get together anymore to do any, any training capability building. Um, and they were saying that was a problem. So that was, that was one, um, sort of opportunity to create sort of an online platform. But the other thing was, you know, it was actually going for a walk, uh, you know, in the country with the dogs, with a, with one of my great, one of my best friends. And he said, you know, well, you look a bit, you look a bit, you know, a bit, bit down. I said, well, yeah, I don't know where I'm going, you know, in terms of, you know, what am I doing? I've been doing this for 19 years, you know, it's very successful and I'm, I've had a great time, but you know, where's, it's not new, you know, I need, I need, I need to renew my mojo by doing something new. So back to the revitalization point, you know, brand, personal brand revitalization, you know, you can become successful, but after a while you start to plateau a bit. Um, and he just said, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I've got this online training thing I've been talking about doing for ages. And he just said, well, why don't you, what's stopping you? Why don't, why don't, why don't you just do it? So, uh, applying the, and then applying the principles we talked about with insurgent brands was then rather than going away and spending months and months planning it, I, I designed, um, a prototype and actually, uh, WD 40, uh, good old WD 40. Uh, I was one of the, uh, 
the people I one of the people I showed it to, um, um, and uh, they said that looks great. We'd we'd like to put some people on a program of the wow. then to actually build the program because it didn't actually exist. It was it was simply a prototype. So the combination of you know opportunity market opportunity given the pandemic, you know a friend who gives you a kick up the arse, just do it. Then don't you know prototype. So build a build a prototype, test it out, check this demand, and then uh, back to my point at the beginning about stamina. You know, it was then literally, you know, I don't know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, because I had, this was November time and the program had to start in January. Um, so to actually, you know, it involved creating a thousand pages of PowerPoint, um, wow. you know, and then polishing the PowerPoint and then four days of filming and then two weeks of editing and then finding a platform. And you no, know, it's a huge, um, more than if I, if I'd known, you know, what I wish I knew, if I'd known at the beginning what was involved, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it because it was just <laughs> absolutely monumental. And also learning a whole new, a whole new discipline, really, you know, yeah. how you build yeah. an online business, how you do online training, how you do filming, how you edit it, you know, how you create the learning journey on the, on the brand growth program. So it was, uh, it was just a, a fantastic experienced to just to, to you know and it showed me the you know the, this power of, re of revitalization uh that i, I talked about so apply, applying your own principles to yourself you know so i say and you know, remember remember what made you famous but then refresh so that's very much yeah. about what but birthing the you know the branching academy was to try and try and do something new again and in fact i rediscovered you know the thrill and the excitement and the fear that i had starting the brand gym 19 years previously you know, when you're leaping into the unknown, you know, from a corporate world into a, being an entrepreneur, um, you know, I, I, you know, I rediscovered those sensations, which was really exciting, but also quite scary because, you know, a lot of big competitors out there, will anyone want to do it? You know, will anyone buy it? Um, so fortunately we had, the, so we did the WD40 on the one hand, which is a corporate program, which has been really um, successful. And they, you know, we've, we've now trained a whole load of people around the world. And then the open program, which is open noted to to anybody who can sign up. Uh, so, you know, the first one of those was in March. We had, you know, 45 people. And then we're now, um, uh, the, the, the next one is in October. So that's just, we're now, you know, looking to get people to sign up to that, uh, to that, uh, that program. Um, and I think that's, to your question, I think that, that, you know, it's given me something to work on, you know, alongside still doing brand consulting projects. And the nice thing is that I, you know, the, the other thing linked to innovation that we always say to clients is, you know, if you want to stretch beyond your core, find something that's actually going to help revitalize the core. So, you know, example of Netflix, you know, going from being a streaming company into production, that's a big brand stretch, you know, you're going from a streaming company to a production company, but the fact you're producing content makes your streaming even more attractive. So there's a direct link. And that's what I'm finding now, which is fascinating with the with the Brandon Academy is that actually creating this online platform, uh, either people do that and say, Hey, we, we've got a consulting challenge, or people say, I've got a sort of brand challenge, but I want to do that by taking my people through a training program and doing a workshop at the end. So the nice thing is that I'm finding is it's not a distraction. It's actually a way of revitalizing your core business. And the two things, you know, the consultant yeah. on the one hand and the, and the sort of training platform are actually working really nicely together. So that, that, I think that will keep me busy for the next, uh, the next few years. Um, and then continuing to sort of drive the, you know, the brand gym blog, I'm still a brandaholic after all these years, you know, I mean, I just see, I see inspiration about marketing and branding everywhere, whether it be I've written blogs about, you know, Shakespeare plays that I've been to see, <laughs> you know, uh, holiday, holiday hotels that I've been to, you know, it, it, it's sort of everywhere. If you, you know, if you stay curious and look around you, I mean, that's the great thing about branding and marketing, you know, is it's, uh, it's, it's everywhere. It affects everything. So build the academy, build the, continue to build the brand gym, you know, know how and knowledge bit of consulting, some consulting projects that keep me busy. Well, Dave, this has been fantastic. I mean, I, I think about, you know, I've had the, the, the benefit of sitting, you know, learning from your sessions and, 
in uh, London and Lyon. And now, you know, now all of us around the world can get it through through laptop as well. But some of the things that will always resonate with me about the things that you talked about is, is when you think about the insurgent brand principles and you talked about, you know, distinctiveness and distribution and relevance. And when you talk about brand stretch, I mean, so many people think about going so far beyond where it really is. And I, as you mentioned, a brand stretch that strength strengthens the core is really important. And then, you know, it's sort of a lifetime thing, but a brand thing too, about crucible moments, right? Yeah. And, and I think there's so much power in that. And what I, what I love about this kind of stuff is that it applies equally to a brand as it does to brand you, meaning, a yeah. career. And so, so many of these principles I feel like are so universal. And so I'm so, uh, I'm so grateful that our paths crossed again. And I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of this and we will post, you know, links to the brand gym and to your blog on our website. So people be sure and check that out. But David Taylor, thanks so much. Fantastic. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And David, yeah, just to uh, finalize, I mean, you know, we talked earlier, we talked last week about what's different and this distinctive, this practical side the no nonsense about you is something that I wholly wholeheartedly admire and embrace and, and for businesses, you know, everywhere. And it's a plug, you know, somebody like you coming in with that fresh face and, and determination is so, so powerful. So, um, you know, those listeners that are listening in, you know, do have a look and I, I don't normally plug do, do have a look and it's, it's a fabulous experience. So uh, yeah, thank you very much, David. Thank you very much guys. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.